Well, good morning again to you. I, uh, I'm going to see if I can get my, get my voice working a little bit this morning to begin. We've, uh, we're, we're kind of woke up in the basement. We've been in the basement for about a week or so with this thing. So uh, if I don't hug you today, you'll know why. I'm trying to just keep my distance from you, okay? And you'll probably appreciate that. <laughs> we have been, isn't it a beautiful day? Isn't it just lovely? You know, there's a couple of folks here that came back from Florida and they brought all this beautiful weather with them. Isn't that nice? We should thank them. <laughs> we, have been, we have been sharing together for several weeks on the subject of revival. Revival. And we will uh, continue along that line this morning. But I'm going to approach it today largely from uh, the prophecy of Isaiah. I'm going to refer to Isaiah this morning. I want to begin with the thought with you this morning that revival is God awareness. And just say that there never has been a great outpouring of God's Spirit or revival any place at any time in the world during the last couple of thousand years that has not featured, basically because this is revival. It's a God awareness. It's an awareness of God. And it's an awareness of God that is not just by Christians but awareness of God by everyone, saint and sinner alike, are aware of God. This is what we need. Oh my, do we need a great awareness of God. But there are some things, there are some things that uh, come to us from the scriptures, are revealed from the word of God, that are foundational to uh, an awareness of God, an outpouring of God's spirit. Uh, in the Hebridean revival, there was a passage that they, the intercessors, the prayer warriors, as they prayed, and as they came before God and asked for a great outpouring of God, they quoted Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 1, over and over and over, and here it is. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down, that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. And they kept reading that and reciting that and praying that over and over and over again. Isaiah refers to mountains, hills, mountains, and he uses mountains throughout Isaiah. He uses mountains as uh, basically to represent, you might say, governmental systems or man-made systems of authority and power in the earth that exercise dominance over people and great influence over people as mountains. So the big mountains are the huge political, social systems. And boy, we have a lot of big mountains around today. And the hills are smaller influences. So let me read this again. Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, tear the heavens, separate the heavens. You know, the part that where separates us from an ability to actually be aware of God's presence with us. We know he is. But to be aware of his presence, to know that he is with us. And so the, again Isaiah, Oh, that thou wouldst rend the heavens, that thou wouldst come down, and that the mountains might flow down at thy presence. And these, it requires and takes the presence of God manifested for these great human edifices to actually flow down, bow down at his presence. This is coming. This is coming. Now, just to begin, uh, Pat's going to put a little diagram up of a map. Just uh, 
just a map. Uh, if she gets her candy out and gets that all done, then we'll get the map. <laughs> all right, here we are. And what we want to do is I want to show you about 739 B.C. About 739 B.C. during the prophecy of Isaiah. This is Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. Israel is divided. The Jewish nation is divided between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, Judah and Jerusalem. Isaiah comes from Judah, and this is Judah here. And Israel is much larger, actually, than Judah up in the north. And so this is the region. So everything that we're going to read about this morning will be prophecy from Isaiah. And it will be, again, he prophesied over the entirety of of God's people, but largely within Judah to Judah and to Jerusalem were the subjects of his prophecy, the targets of his prophecy. All right? Thank you, Pat. He begins in, in Isaiah, he begins with the wicked, describing, describing the wickedness of Judah, the depravity and uh, how they had fallen from their relationship with God. He talks about the unfaithful city of Jerusalem, how unfaithful it was before God. Then he moves in the second chapter, he moves into the mountain of the Lord's house. And I want to read some of this prophecy from chapter 2 because this is delicious, absolutely marvelous. The mountain of the Lord's house. Now remember mountains would be those huge edifices or systems or structures in the earth that influence public opinion and human behavior. Now, he's not talking about man-made mountains now. He's talking about the mountain of the Lord's house, the place where, where the Lord resides, and how that the presence of God will become a great mountain that influences the earth, all of the earth. And so in Isaiah 2 and 2, it's, he, he writes, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be firmly established as the highest of all the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. All nations shall flow to it. It will be much more prominent than the United States of America, or Russia, or any other nation in the world, or any belief system in the world, secular humanism, or progressivism, or anything like this. All these things will diminish and bow down as this comes about. This will surely come about. This absolutely has been prophesied. It is as certain and as sure as the coming of Messiah and all the events prophesied about the coming of Jesus and who he was and what he would do. And as those have all been perfectly fulfilled, these things will also be perfectly fulfilled. He said all nations shall flow to it. The idea of flow, as he uses it over and over, Isaiah is to bow down to it, to defer to it to recognize its authority. And many people shall come and say, in that day, when that day comes, it's up ahead of us, many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Now again, uh, <laughs> when it says go up to the mountain of the Lord, it's not necessarily talking just about a physical mountain. But it's talking about this idea again where the great, and I'm repeating myself, but this is very important to understand. 
that the great power that influences human beings and the minds of men is not the mountain of human governments, but the mountain of the Lord and the Lord's house, His presence among the people. And so they say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. These days are coming. These days are coming. And he shall judge between the nations. There still will be nations. There will be nations on the earth. But he will judge between the nations. How are we going to resolve some of these disputes that are in the world today? They are irreconcilable. They are impossible to, to resolve, aren't they? They're just impossible to resolve. They talk about the issue of Judea, Samaria, the Palestinians, and Israel, and the two-state solution, and all of these things are talked about. And they know when they're talking about them that there's not a chance of these things being successfully accomplished by human negotiation. There's not a chance of it happening. And they know while they're saying it that there's not a chance of it happening. We have some huge problems, and there's no way that human beings can resolve them. But it says many people will say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we, we may walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, go forth the law and instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge between the nations. And he shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat, this is wonderful, this, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Can, do you so desire, uh, do you so desire that time to come? Do you crave for that time to come? Do you pray for that time to come? That time is prophesied that it will come. It will surely come. But it will come at the awesome manifestation of the presence of God and an awareness of God. This is when it will come. This will be the cause of the great change. And it is up ahead of us. And it is most certainly coming. But we want to talk about Isaiah because there's something that happens in his life and it's so instructive to us because basically I would say to you this morning that what we're about to uh, discover happening in the life of Isaiah, the prophet, is something that needs to happen in your life and my life. It needs to happen in us. And it's a part of this great manifestation of this prophecy. Then in verse 5 of the second chapter, it's kind of separated from verse 4. Because Isaiah says this, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is an invitation to the house of Jacob. He says, O house of Jacob, come, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Could we say that to each other this morning? Could we say to each other this morning, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. What a wonderful place to walk. Let's walk in the light of the Lord. Let's not walk in darkness, right? Obscurity, dimness, questioning everything all the time, going from disappointment to disappointment in life. 
But let's walk in the light of the Lord. In the light of the Lord, there's truth, absolute truth and awareness of what the truth is, what's right and what's not right. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Then he begins to talk about the 12th verse of chapter 2, Isaiah, about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. What a great phrase. For there shall be a day of the Lord of hosts against all who are proud and haughty and against all who are lifted up, and they shall be brought low. The wrath of God will begin by coming down against all the cedars of Lebanon, and this is basically all the powers west of the Jordan that are high and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, and this would be all the powers east of the Jordan. This would be into places like Iraq and Iran and all those nations east of the Jordan. And after that, against all the high mountains and all the hills that are lifted up. And this, again, is basically all these political structures and world governments and powers. And against every high tower and every fenced wall. He's talking about the day of the Lord and what will happen in the, when this period of time referred to as the day of the Lord comes. He continues in verse 16, And against all the ships of Tarshish and all the picturesque, and this would be basically the west, the west beyond uh, the Straits of Gibraltar, against all the ships of Tarshish and all the picturesque and desirable imagery, then the loftiness of men shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. What day is this? The day of the Lord. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. And that's coming. That's coming. That's coming. It's just up ahead of us. But I want to go to Isaiah chapter 6. I want to go to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Verse number 1. I love this. In the year that King Uzziah died, he begins. In the year that King Uzziah died. Wow, who was King Uzziah? King Uzziah was a tremendous king. He reigned in Jerusalem for about 52 years. And he was a king. He was about the 10th king, I believe, in the southern kingdom. And he, uh, he was loved by the people. And he... <laughs> Uh, was uh, basically involved in restoring much of the splendor and glory of the southern kingdom. And when people thought of King Uzziah early in his reign, they thought of somebody who would be almost Solomon-like, a little bit like Solomon. Nobody could be exactly like Solomon, but he was something that, a person that was Solomon-like. He was actually related to Isaiah. And some say they were cousins, and some say that Isaiah was a nephew of King Uzziah. Whatever it was, the belief is that they were related to each other. It's evident from the writings of Isaiah that he admired King Uzziah. And that there was a very uh, powerful event that occurred in Isaiah's life personally in the year that King Uzziah died. So we want to talk a little bit about King Uzziah. His name means Jehovah is strength. Jehovah is strength. Remember that, Uzziah. As long as you remember that Jehovah is strength, then you will succeed as king over Judah. But if you forget where your strength derives from, then you will begin to experience decline, a great decline. 
Early in his career, this is the career of King Uzziah, he was victorious over all of his enemies. He strengthened his kingdom, and he improved the economic status of his nation. The king was intelligent. He was, a, he was an intelligent uh, military tactician. He was able to conceive and construct weapons that had not been discovered or constructed before. He became famous for these inventions. He was a superb organizer, and his fame spread even to the Egyptian dynasty. And Egypt even heard about King Uzziah of Judah, and what a great, wonderful king he was, and how intelligent he was, and how successful as an inventor he was, and what a military strategist he was, King Uzziah. During his monarchy, the nation enjoyed a bright spot in the world's history. So it was again, after a great deal of demise within Judah, now there's a rising taking place in Judah under the reign of Uzziah. Something happened to Isaiah in the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah loved Uzziah, admired him as a king of Israel, as they all did. But we go to Second Chronicles, and the story turns very sad. And we go to Second Chronicles, the 26th chapter, and I want to read the history now of King Uzziah from the Chronicles. But when King Uzziah was strong, he became proud to his own destruction. And he trespassed against the Lord his God, for he went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. He became proud. And he felt that he had the authority and the authorization before God to go into the temple and to offer, altar, offer, uh, offer incense on the altar of incense. This was something that only the priests were authorized to do. And Azariah the priest went in after him. And so the king went in to offer incense on the altar. And Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him eighty priests of the Lord, men of courage. They basically were aghast, and they said, This cannot be, this cannot be, he must not do this. And they opposed King Uzziah, and they said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are set apart to burn incense. They are ordained, set apart by God for this purpose, and you are not. Withdraw from the sanctuary. You have trespassed, and that will not be to your credit and honor before the Lord God, they said to him. They pleaded with him to turn around, to change, to go back, to recant. But he became enraged. And Uzziah was enraged, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was enraged with the priests, he's basically defying the priests, and he's enraged with them. And as he is there flushed with rage against them for trying to oppose him to do the thing that he should not, must not do, leprosy broke out upon his forehead. While he was enraged with the priest, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. And as Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked upon him, behold, he was leprous on his forehead. And so they forced him out of there. See, he's unclean. And no one who is unclean can, can enter into the temple at all under any circumstances, let alone perform the function that is reserved for the priest alone. 
And they said, out of here, you must get out of here. And as soon as he realized himself that he had leprosy, the Lord had smitten him and he had leprosy on his face. Then he made haste to get out himself. It was too late. And he turned. And he left. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, he dwelt in a separate house, for he was excluded from the Lord's house. And Jotham, his son, took charge of the king's household, ruling the people of the Lord. And now the rest of the acts of Uzziah from first to last Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, wrote. And so Uzziah slept or died. He slept with his fathers. And they buried him in the burial field of the kings outside the royal tombs. For they said, he is a leper. He had to live apart in the diminishing days of his life as a leper. He had to be secluded in the last few short period of time of his life and then in death he was buried alone and apart because they said he's a leper he's unclean and one of the greatest kings of Judah there's a writing by C.S. Lewis if you've ever read his book Mere Christianity some of you have read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis this is what he said it was through pride that the devil became the devil Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. A proud man is always looking down on things and down on people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above. Just isn't that wonderful? See, even with the devil, when he became the devil, as he began to succumb to pride then he lost the ability to see those realities and verities that were above him which would include God Almighty in the way that he is intended to be seen and this is what happened to Uzziah and so we come back now to chapter 6 of Isaiah verse 1 now in the year that King Uzziah died Isaiah is writing in a vision. You know, Isaiah, he is deeply affected by this. Deeply affected. He is a prophet. But there is a level of commissioning that is about, is yet to take place in his life and ministry. He needs to know God in a way that up until now he has not known God. There's a, there's a sense in which sometimes we think that we know God and we participate in worship and we go to meetings and we sing songs and we do these different things, but we really don't know God. We really don't know Him yet. We need to know Him. We haven't had a revelation of who He really is and we can only know Him as He reveals Himself, imparts a revelation of Himself to us. Then and only then do we really know Him. And Isaiah was gifted, and even gifted in the prophetic office, but yet did not know God in the way that he was about to come to know God. And somehow it took the death of his beloved king to shake him to the core of his being. I believe we can rightly conclude that this is what occurred. 
Because in the year that King Uzziah died, and the depression of the people, including Isaiah, the great heartache, oh no, oh no, how could it be of all men that we loved, Uzziah, how could this be? But he had a vision of God. Isaiah had a vision. He said, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the skirts of his train filled the most holy part of the temple. And above him stood the, Pharise- the, the seraphim. The seraphim. This is a different kind of angel from the cherubim that normally would be in the Holy of Holies in the temple. This is something different. This is different. He had a vision. He has a vision of God sitting upon his throne, elevated high, lifted up, and his glory fills the holiest place. And these angelic beings, known as seraphim, stood above, and it says, each had six wings. With two, they, each of them covered his face. And with two, each one covered his feet. And with the other two, each one flew. And it's a fascinating statement by F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer had this to say, and I thought this was very insightful. He said, six wings, two for meditation, two for humility, and two for service. And then he said, service should take only a third of our energy. Service should take only a third of our energy. In other words, in our relationship with the Lord, the act of this idea of serving, of working, of ministering, of doing things in his name should only take a third part of our energy and time. The other part should be in knowing him. Meditation and humility in his presence. Then continuing in Isaiah 6 and verse 3, with the seraphim, it says, And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There will come a time when this will actually literally be true. Actually be true. The whole earth will be full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, now, what effect did this have on Isaiah? What effect was the uh, manifestation of the presence of God have on you or me? And would that have anything to do with your ability to serve the Lord Jesus Christ with your whole heart and all of your life? to be productive in the very purpose that you are designed for is to have a revelation of himself would that affect your ability to minister your ability to live victoriously in this world the answer is absolutely yes because now as Isaiah has had this revelation of God in this way that he's described he says then then see there's things that there's a progression to things there's a progression we live in time, space, time, and, and, and we're governed by progression of events. 
one thing happens, and then the next thing happens, and then the thing that follows occurs, right? So, he has the vision of God in this way. Then he said, Isaiah said, Woe is me, woe is me, for I am undone and ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He perhaps didn't even see this in himself before. See, this in revival, where there is a manifestation of God, an awareness of God, then we begin to see things about ourselves and within ourselves that normally we don't see and are not aware of. We may think we're just perfectly fine. We're as good as the next person. There's nothing wrong with me. Don't criticize me. I'm fine. But in revival, when the awareness of God is present, then we see things about ourselves that before that we didn't see, but we must see these things because these things are impediments to our ability to actually be used of the Lord. They're hindrances. They stand in the way. And we don't know it. And Isaiah had something standing in his way, and he didn't know it. And it took a great tragedy, the death of King Uzziah, to bring him to the place where he actually was so seeking after God. And so he said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And I wrote down, this is revival, this is revival, this is what revival is. Then in verse 6, it says, Then, then, flew one of the seraphims, the progression. Now something begins to happen to Isaiah. Then flew one of the seraphim, the heavenly beings, to me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity and guilt are taken away, and your sin is completely atoned for and forgiven. Let me read this again, verses 6 and 7. As he becomes aware, Isaiah becomes aware of his, basically that, you know, he, he, he stands as unclean before the Lord. He's unclean. And he confesses this and says, Woe is me. And then one of the heavenly beings flew to him, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from off the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity and guilt are taken away. And your sin is completely atoned for and forgiven. And now comes something. Now comes the commissioning of Isaiah. He is commissioned now to a work of the Lord. This is great. This is so great, and I'm going to close with this. And this is, a, this is a likeness of that which will occur in every life of every person who will be used of the Lord in a significant way. It says in, in chapter 6 and verse 8, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Whom shall I send? See, there's a great need. I would say there's a great need for individuals to be sent. But we cannot be sent out into this world to be effective in this world until we have been commissioned by the Lord and sent by the Lord. And this is basically the way 
the principles upon which this always works. It always works this way, as it occurred in Isaiah's life, in, of course, in very unique ways to you, this principle will occur in your life and my life. That's the way it is. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? I love the choice of words here, the pronoun, the plural. Who shall go for us? And then Isaiah said, Then said I, Here am I, send me. Now why is he saying this now? He's saying this now because his speech, his lips have been touched with the live coal from off the altar. And now the things that he's capable of speaking and saying come directly from the Lord. And his prophetic office now has been commissioned at a much higher level than it ever had been up until this point in time. Follow now through the book of Isaiah and read the wonderful things that he wrote, including a description of the crucifixion of Messiah. How could he see such a thing? How could he see these things? He saw these things now because that within him, which had been a hindrance before, was no longer a hindrance because he had been touched by that which had been ministered to him from the altar of the Lord. Been touched personally. And now when he saw the need and heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall go for us? He said, Here am I. Send me. And the Lord said, Go and tell this people, and I'm going to stop there. And the Lord said, Go and tell this people. Now that happens in revival. And that's about to happen now in a global way across the length and breadth of this planet. It is already happening, but it will increase. The spiritual dynamic and principle will increase. And he said, go and tell this people. And I just want to close with a question. Are you witnessed to by this? Are you witnessed to by this? Do you sense anything within you witnessing to any of this and these things? I'm going to ask you to seriously consider and take that question with you. Am I witnessed to by this? Does this kind of message find a place within me where it witnesses to me on the inside? Do I sense an affinity to this message? Or is it just words to me? Does it find a repository within my spirit? Because if it finds a repository within your spirit, then I want to say to you that you are being dealt with by the Spirit of God in this same way now. And may the Lord prosper you and bless you. And may He commission you in the work that He has for you to do in Jesus' name because the time is short. But the greatest, the greatest of all is just up ahead. The greatest of all is just up ahead. It's going to be glorious. But be ready for it. Be ready for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. I brought a song. Danny Gaither is going to minister this song to us, this prayer to us. And then we're going to close.
of the Lord and in the assurance that uh, the work that he has is not completed yet and the work he has for you is not completed yet but let's remember this that these things are real and all those people back in the days of Isaiah who came to the temple and they just came to the temple, and they came to the temple, and they went through all the rituals of the temple and the sacrificial system of the temple. And they did all those things, and after a while, you know, for many of them, it became kind of just a routine. It became kind of routine. 
and even with Uzziah, and even in some measure, even with Isaiah a little bit in those early years. But this was, behind those things that they took as routine, was an ultimate reality that is the presence and the holiness of God. And all these things they came to think of as routine were intended to uh, permit them to come close to Him. And if engaged in reverently, allow them to receive from Him forgiveness of their sins. This was no joke. This was no nothing to take as routine. And what we are doing is not anything to take as routine either. And we must be very serious about these things. We have only one advocate. We have only one person through whom we dare. But he invites us to come into the presence of God. But let's never forget for one second that it's only through the person of Jesus, only through his person, only through his provision, that we can come into the presence of the Father. Don't ever take it for granted that we can just come, Father God, Father God, this, Father God. It's only through the person of Messiah Jesus that we can do this. Uzziah forgot that. We must never forget that. Never, ever forget that. Go in the peace of the Lord. Amen.